right. But do, do be praying for them as they travel back. Um, so this evening, uh, we're returning to our study of the Psalm of Ascent. And if you've been with us either online or in person this summer, we've gone in order. This week, we are skipping ahead to Psalm 130 this evening. And the reason for that is simply time. There are more Psalms of Ascent than we have weeks in the summer to cover them. Uh, so if you have an ESV, you can find that on page 518, but I, I do commend Psalm 129 to you. Read it, study it, meditate on it. It speaks of affliction and of the righteousness of the Lord. It is a beautiful psalm, but we had to make a choice. So do take some time and read that if you get the chance. So as we turn uh, to our study of Psalm 130, though, uh, if you'll join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we ask uh, your blessing on the study of your word tonight. May you apply it to our hearts. May you uh, make us receptive to the truth and the calling of this psalm. As this calls us to repent of our sin, may you make us mindful of our sin and of the hope that we have in Christ. Make us mindful of these things as we study, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So now is our tradition, if you're able, please stand and we will read Psalm 130. A Song of Ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the study of his word. Be seated. The, the question that came to my mind as I began looking into this psalm, as I began studying, is uh, how do you adequately speak of someone's anguish? How do you accurately portray the depth of someone's heart? I think book after book and movie after movie and song after song, they, they all attempt to do that. They attempt to look at this human uh, condition and to illustrate it somehow. Um, but as I meditated on this scripture this week, there was really no story, no illustration uh, to do justice to the concept in our first verse. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. There's no, there's no way verbally to express this feeling. There's no uh, way except if you have felt it yourself. If you've been in the depths, if you've cried out to God well, in this situation, you know exactly what the psalmist is feeling right now. Looking for some uh, example would, would help us, and I, and I read a whole bunch of different stories this week. I read the story of two men who were lost at sea for over 400 days. I can't imagine what they were thinking and feeling and how they were crying out during that time. I read uh, 
stories of people who survived Auschwitz. I read some of the worst accounts that I could think of, that, that I could imagine, and they all would have been appropriate. They all would have been helpful. But they all kind of, if you have an experience, they don't, they don't get you to experience the same thing that the psalmist is experiencing here. So if you've been in a situation like that where you're lost, completely unsure of, of what to do, completely helpless, it's that situation that, that just ripped your heart in two. It turned your stomach, and that's where the author of this psalm is when we open. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. And this is the same cry that we hear from Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. And it's the cry of, of Israel when they were captive in Babylon. And so this, this speaks to a universal experience of this experience of being in the depths. And I think if we look at our psalm, we see it's, it's the universal expression of, of the problem that sin causes. That's ultimately what this psalm is about. It's about sin. It's the problem of sin. It's anguish over the reality of sin. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at the problem, the problem of sin. And our second is the solution. And finally, we're going to see a promise. So that's what we're going to look at today, a problem, a solution, and a promise. So as we move to examine the problem, sin may not be the first thing that you notice, that you think of when you read the first two verses in this psalm. We see this intense cry for help. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. This sounds like suffering and, and, and affliction. This sounds like someone beat down again and again and again, and there's nowhere else to turn. But isn't this what sin does to us? Listen to what the Lord says to Cain about sin. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is a master. Make no mistake of that. The sin wishes to devour us, to rule over us, to make us a slave to it. And Jesus affirms this in John chapter 8 when he says that everyone who commits a sin is a slave to it. And in Romans, uh, it says that you are slaves to the one you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience that leads to righteousness. So the problem then is that we are slaves. We who were born in sin are slaves to sin. This isn't to be taken uh, lightly. It's not what the psalmist is doing here, but oftentimes in, in some Christian circles, sin is taken maybe, maybe not so seriously. Sin really isn't maybe that big of a deal. In fact, I was in a seminary class, of all places. It was a theology class, and we were covering uh, repentance. That was the, the theological topic of the day. And the professor asks, hey, when was the last time any of you heard a sermon on repentance? And I'm going, well, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> last week, maybe. Um, but as I looked around, my classmates, some of them were nodding like, yeah, it's been a while. So maybe, uh, maybe it's not taken that seriously. Uh, but it should be, because isn't repentance from sin, isn't that one of the things that Christ first preached? Repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. That's the first message he says, is, is to take sin seriously. Repent of it. Or perhaps sin is taken in such a mixed up, twisted way that people become legalists about it. They're so, uh, have such a mixed up view of sin that they, 
put regulation after regulation after law after rule after everything that you can think of to keep you from sinning. And all of a sudden, you've, you've turned away from God and turned into a religion that's man-made and not God-ordained. So how do we know that these, these first two verses are really talking about sin? So if you look at verse 3, you see, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What is the author of this psalm so concerned about? What has driven him to cry out in the depths? What has him begging to be heard that God would pay attention to him? It's his sin. He doesn't hide from the fact that he's a sinner. He doesn't try and create these elaborate ways that legalists do to to keep himself from sin. He takes sin as the most serious problem in his life. Now, how many of us have this view of sin? How many of us, when we look at ourselves, we understand that, as, as the psalmist does, we understand how serious our own sin is? Is sin something we just do, and it's a part of life, and we can just move on, and it's okay because God is forgiving? Do we just brush it aside as if it's nothing? Or do we cry out as this psalm does, begging God to hear us, because we understand the weight of the transgressions of the law of God. Uh, And I I have to confess that I don't always take my sin this seriously. I am a great sinner, and that is a problem. In fact, that is the problem. Sin is the problem. It's the problem for me, it's the problem for you, and it's the problem all around us. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from each other. Sin gives us a skewed view of ourselves. Sin is at the root of every evil thing, every evil problem. And what's worse is that sin is the simplest thing in the world. Sin's, uh, you may know this from the catechism, sin is either breaking the law of God or failing to do something that the law requires. It's so easy just to, to think something wrong, think something the law doesn't want you to think. Sin is so easy, which makes it so common, so widespread. That first sin, think about it, eating a piece of fruit. So easy to eat a piece of fruit that looks good for food. And this is why we need to take the problem of sin seriously, because it's so easy. And it's so widespread. And it's why we ought to call out in repentance as the psalmist does because sin is that serious. It's that important. It's that big of a problem. But just as sin is the one problem, the problem in and for us all, so the solution is singular. So turn and look back with me at verse 4 if you have your Bibles open. But with you, There is forgiveness that you may be feared. And here I love the Hebrew. I don't always say I love Hebrew because it's a very difficult language. But here in the first line of this verse, there's no verb. It literally just says, with you, forgiveness. It's just two words. The word you is even just an addition onto the word with. Just with you, forgiveness. And the the way that God has chosen to deal with this problem of sin is Forgiveness, the way he's chosen to deal with the rebellion against him, because that's what sin is, is rebelling against God. 
declaring war against the sovereign creator of the universe whose standard is perfection, the way he's chosen to deal with that is God himself offering forgiveness. And we could easily end right here because that's really exciting. Because as deep and as wide and as common and as easy as sin is, man, how hopeful is it that God, with him, has forgiven us. And we could, we could end, we could listen to the postlude, we could stand around in the parking lot for a little while and rejoice because with him, forgiveness. <laughs> and that's the solution. That's it. Uh, that same depth of woe, that same anguish that the psalmist has been just mired in in the first couple of verses has now turned to hope. But his hope isn't fulfilled yet. He's still waiting. Verse 5, it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. This is a a discipline. This is a spiritual discipline in waiting. This isn't laziness or idleness. It's, uh, It's like waiting for a flower to bloom. I know many of you plant flowers and cultivate gardens, and but it's not just waiting for another month or six months or the next year for this to bloom. Uh, if you've ever heard this name, I'll be impressed because I had to research a lot to find it. It's uh, the Rothschild Slipper Orchid. It's one of the rarest flowers in the world and one of the most expensive that you can buy. It's a very beautiful kind of flowing white and violet petals, but it only blooms once on average 15 years. So those who purchase one of these flowers, it's not just you buy it and you set it on the shelf and you wait in 15 years. No, you have to actively check the soil, adding the right nutrients, not overwatering, not underwatering, not making sure it gets too much light or not enough light. It's a constant watching and waiting for this flower to bloom. And that's the idea in our passage, that the psalmist's soul waits for the Lord. The spiritual discipline of waiting, it it includes many things. It might be solitude, spending time alone with God. It might be meditation in some way on on God or his word. It might be prayer or fasting or, or other activities. But we can boil it down to this, I think, intentionally living for the hope you have in Christ. So if you're reading along carefully with our text, you'll notice how how waiting is linked with hope. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. We're not merely waiting for something because we have nothing else to do. We're waiting because of the hope we have in God's word. Now, obviously, the psalm is written before Christ was born. We have the benefit of knowing him is the fulfillment of this hope. He is the one, Christ is the one on whom all of the psalmist's hopes are placed. He's waiting for the Messiah. All of Israel at this point is waiting for the Messiah. So then what are we waiting for? If Christ has already come, already been to the cross, he's already risen and been uh, and ascended, what are we waiting for? Well, we're, we're kind of caught in the middle of things. We know that he is the one that our hope is based on, uh, but sin still remains. This problem still remains. We're, we're waiting during that Christ, uh, the, the period that Christ describes as the kingdom is here and not yet here. He talks about that a lot. We've mentioned this before in some other sermons, this, this idea of the already not yet. 
that's where we're caught. That Christ has come and we, we have our hope uh, fulfilled in him. But we're in this period between his first coming and when he's coming back. Where sin still remains. So yes, the solution is Christ. The solution is forgiveness for sin. And it's forgiveness for sin through his work on the cross. It's, it's Christ's ultimate defeat of sin. It's putting things right. It's the making of a new heaven and a new earth of, of new creation that 2 Corinthians tells us that, that we are if we're in Christ. It's not just forgiveness of sin. It's, it's creation of a world where there will be no more weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Revelation tells us. It's the place where the, the problem of sin, uh, the effects of sin, the depths of anguish and woe that, that we're experiencing here in this psalm, it's where that's no more. That's what we're waiting for. It's the place in time where God is worshipped by all his people perfectly together and we have access to God without this wall of sin between us. It's, it's as Revelation and Exodus both tell us that the dwelling place of God is with man. And what a glorious time that will be. Isn't that what God is deserving of? That glory and that praise for putting an end to the problem, for offering the one solution through Christ. And we see that just as our psalmist does in, back in verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that fear is, as you know, we've talked about this many times, fear is not terror. It's that deserved reverence, that recognition of, of God's holiness, the recognition of his goodness. That's the fear of the glory that he is justly due. And so we wait for that coming time. We wait for the solution, the forgiveness of sin, the putting all things right and the ultimate end to sin. Christ does this. He is the solution. He is that warrior king, the prophet, and the priest that will complete this. And if he has called you to himself, if you are one of God's people, then we wait in earnest together for him. We wait like a watchman over the city. We wait more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And what a beautiful double line of poetry here where the psalmist gives us a chance to pause and wait and ponder the beauty of waiting for our hopes to be fulfilled. And you know the image here, the walls of Jerusalem, you can imagine watchmen walking around, watching if there might be an attack that night, waiting for the morning, waiting for the safety of daylight, waiting until the people can move about freely and safely. We wait more patiently than that. We wait more patiently than a botanist might wait for an orchid to bloom. But if you are waiting to acknowledge Christ, if you're waiting to acknowledge him as your savior, if you're waiting to proclaim faith in him, you're waiting for the wrong thing. His work on the cross, his gift of salvation and redemption is not what we're to wait for. That work of redemption, it's, it's known. We don't have to wait as Israel did for the Messiah. We have that blessing. So if you have any call, any interest in Christ, brothers and sisters, don't wait. Acknowledge him. Recognize your own sin. Recognize the problem in your life and come near to the solution. Come near to the one who offers salvation. Come near, be joined to Christ. 
joined to his people, to his church, and joined them in waiting for the coming glory of eternity with God without the problem of sin. Don't wait. Don't wait. Now you'll notice uh, a shift between verses 6 and 7. In the first uh, six verses, the psalmist is speaking personally, speaking about himself and his own sin. He's aware of his own sin, and he cries out in repentance. He sings of, of the hope of his soul waiting for the Lord. But in verse 7, it shifts. It shifts to, from the individual to talk about the corporate. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He is now calling the people of God to that same hope, that same waiting in the Lord. So he kind of doubles down on his earlier statement with another lack of a verb. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With the Lord, steadfast love. With the Lord, hesed is the word. You may have heard that before. Hesed, that deep covenant love, that deep covenant loyalty, loving God who uh, forgives sin. That's the word here. And it goes on, with the Lord steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption. This phrase, this plentiful redemption, it takes on a slightly almost mathematical connotation to it. Redemption, this idea of, of, of a ransom, of being purchased, of the problem of sin is a price that has to be paid. And plentiful takes on this adding on, this multiplying, this growing and growing, ever-growing idea. So with the Lord, plentiful redemption, if there is a price to pay, I will keep growing my grace until it is paid. We who were once slaves to sin have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and that is plentiful redemption for an exceptionally high price. So Israel, hope in the Lord because we have been given steadfast love and plentiful redemption. This hope for us as individuals and this hope for all of God's people is given to us here. That hope comes from the one solution. It comes from Christ. But that is not the end of the psalm. We're left with a promise. We've seen the problem, we've seen the solution in Christ, but there is one promise that remains here. And that promise is assurance. If you'll turn and look at the final verse with me, verse 8, and it reads, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. Now notice the lack of, of wavering here. There is no, if you do X, Y, and Z, then maybe there's some redemption for you. Maybe I'll cover some of your iniquities. There's nothing like that. God is sure. And he is faithful. He will redeem all his people. And this, I think, hits many of us right where we are. Many of us here, we know the scriptures. We may be able to talk about all the stories uh, that we read in the Bible. And we know many of the foundational passages. Uh, like we read in Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Or... Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We know all this. We've read this 
but still sometimes we think we must do something. We think that we must work for our own salvation in some way. But here the promise in the final verse of this psalm, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. He will, it is certain, it is assured. There is, there is nothing. There's not one thing that you can do to save yourself. There's not a single person on earth alive or has ever been alive who has done something to earn their salvation. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves better in the sight of God. Because the problem is in all of us and around all of us. Sin is inside us. But Christ has given himself as the solution, and he is faithful to fulfill his promises. Israel, he will redeem from all his iniquity. All. It's a pretty encompassing word. There's no room uh, to go, well, not this one, but, but this one, not, not this other thing, but, but maybe this one. No, all. All your filth, all the vile things that we've done or thought or failed to do, Christ is the solution. It's not just this psalm that declares that to us. We see that all over Scripture. The promise is here, but, but in so many other places. Look for that assurance. First John says this. It says, I write these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. If you believe in Christ, know that you have eternal life with him. In Romans 7, Paul, Paul gets to this uh, discussion of sin. And Paul had a vision of Christ. He was knocked blind, and still he sinned. He calls himself the chief of sinners, but in Romans 7, he says, I know the truth. I know what I love. I know the things that I want to do, and still I don't do them. I sin over and over and over again, and I've asked for it to stop, and he still sins. So maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you keep doing the same thing and you keep asking for forgiveness and you just keep sinning and you don't think that there's any way that there can be salvation and redemption for you. But then Romans 8 comes. The first verse in Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's conclusion of his musings of all of his sin and, and the way that he lives in a way that he doesn't want to, all of it comes back to the solution, to Christ. But we're caught in that already, not yet, just as he is. So we know the truth of Christ. We know that he came and we know that he will return. So maybe we think, let's just keep on sinning. That way grace may abound. You all know Paul's response to that. No, let's not do that. Because Romans 8 goes on and gives us more hope, more assurance. He says, uh, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if you're one of his disciples, if you have that sense of call from the Lord, if you've acknowledged him as your savior, then be assured of your salvation because he's called you and you will be glorified with him. So brothers and sisters, hear this. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So when you still face the problem, 
when you still come down to the problem of sin, go back to the solution. Go back to the word where we're taught by Christ who preached that simple message, repent and believe. And that's what the psalm is calling us to do. When you find yourself in, in the valley, in that valley of sin, the valley of, uh, of anguish, turn to the Lord and repent. He will hear you when you call. He has promised redemption. Brothers and sisters, it's a problem. But Christ is the solution. So now I, I want to close in prayer. Uh, but it's not uh, a prayer of mine. We actually read uh, one of the prayers out of this collection is our confession together. We read it from the Valley of Vision. Uh, but I want to read as our closing prayer the introduction to that collection of Puritan prayers, the, the introduction prayer. It's called the Valley of Vision. So as we close and we go out uh, from here, from this place tonight, um, encourage you all to hope, hope in the Lord, be assured of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. Amen.